it's evident that the Spirit of God is in the room this morning, and we owe him all praise for that. Let's go before him now. And God, we enter your holy throne, unworthy, but able because of your son, Jesus. And God, we say thank you for that. Thank you for the good news of your gospel, the simple gospel, the true gospel. Lord, the hope that it brings. God, there is a soul here this morning that doesn't know you. Lord, I ask that you reveal yourself to them for who you are. God, show your goodness. Pour out your grace as you have to me and so many others in this room. Lord, we ask that as the rest of this Sunday service continues, that your, your spirit is present, of course, but that it doesn't just stay here, that it goes with us throughout our weeks, whether we're at our jobs, school, wherever it may be, Lord, use us. God, let me become less so that you can become more. It's for your glory we do this, not our own. And God, we say thank you for the ability that you give us to worship you freely in this nation. God, not having to look over our shoulders is a blessing in and of itself. And Lord, we acknowledge you. For those that are unable to make it this morning, I ask that you be with them, that you give them the means to worship. Remind them it's not a building that they have to be at to worship you. But wherever two or three are gathered, you are in their midst. God, I have it on my heart this morning to pray for the persecuted church. Show your face to them. Give them a cup of cold water if they need it. Lord, we are so grateful for who you are, for the fact that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to earth. He didn't just come to earth. He came and lived a perfect life and even yet died on a cross as the sacrifice for our sins. But of course, it didn't stop there. Three days later, he rose from the dead to demonstrate that through faith in him, we can have eternal life. God, we give him all praise. We give you all praise and honor. And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. Thank you, Angie. Welcome to, to Hope Community Church. For those of you that are new, we are very blessed to have you here in our presence. Pray that uh, you are able to glorify the Lord and praise him with us. Now, uh, we're, of course, going through 1 Peter, and we're in a very heavy chapter. If you've been following along with us, you know this. We're, we're on the topic of suffering. Two weeks ago, we went through suffering well, of which we covered the posture we're to take when we are suffering in regards to our attitude. Last week, we went through suffering right, where we were able to walk through the peace that God gives us amidst suffering. Well, this week we're going to be in the third and final part of the series of suffering. Can I get an amen, somebody? Amen. It's called Suffering Justly. 
Suffering Justly is going to be our title. This chapter and really this entire book that Peter wrote to the believers that were undergoing persecution is all over the place in terms of content. You have everything from the gospel to baptism to Christ descending into hell to wives submitting to their husbands and everything in between. And you're going to see, see the evidence of this in just these few short verses. And trust me, it was quite an effort to put together a sermon when Peter is all over the place in terms of what he's writing to the persecuted church. But my prayer for us today is this, that we will be able to see the reality that we, are not, we cannot be justified before God. We can't. There is nothing that we can do to obtain justification before a holy and a righteous God. There is absolutely no way that a human being is justified before God. Now, here's the catch. On our own. But because of God and his love, who put on flesh, who came to earth, and lived a perfect life, we can rest assured that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's not by works we have been saved, but by faith, which is a gift from God. There is nothing that we can do to obtain eternal life. But because of the grace of God, we can join him in heaven and have a relationship with him on earth, knowing that the debt has been paid for our sin and live a joyful life here on earth because of it. Jesus came and died on a cross for our sins, though he was perfectly righteous and holy, so that those who are unrighteous have access to the throne room of God. And when you realize there is nothing you can do to obtain it on your own, you become fully aware that suffering for it is eternally and completely worth it. It's worth it. So as I said, join me. First Peter this morning. Rob, could you grab my water for me if you don't mind? We're going to be in First Peter, uh, continuing chapter 3. We're going to close out the chapter. Oh, don't throw it. I won't catch it. All right. <laughs> But as per usual, we'll take it in bite-sized pieces. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. First point this morning is this. Because of Christ, the unrighteous have been justified. Because of Christ, the unrighteous have been justified. Christ suffered once for sins. Just once. One time. How many times? Because that was all that was needed. This is the gospel. 
Christ suffering for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, the perfect for the imperfect, the innocent for the guilty, the creator for the creation. To those of us that have come to church and have been in church for a while know this to be true, but we all must be reminded of it, not just on Sundays, but every single day of our walk with the Lord. You can argue theology all day, but if you disagree here, you disagree with Christianity altogether. It's a truth that is undeniable. It's a fact that is reliable, and it's news that is factual, and it's good. The righteous dying for the unrighteous. To the ear that is just now hearing this for the first time, needs to fully Understand what this means. It's very simple, yet it's difficult to comprehend, not because of the story, but because of the depth of grace that it involves. In fact, I would say that it's impossible to comprehend. God created human beings in his image to have dominion over his own creation Man was created perfectly, just as God intended him to be. He then fashioned woman out of the rib of the man, and the two dwelled in perfect unity as they ruled the land together. Then Satan came into the picture in the form of a snake. He tempted Eve, the woman, to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, of which God had specifically explained to them not to eat, and she ate it. She then gave a bite to Adam, and he ate it. And this is what was called the first recorded sin. And once this sin took place, man was condemned because of it, and a sacrifice was needed to take place to justify their relationship with a holy God. Not long after this, the sacrifice that was necessary for justification was an animal or a perfect lamb. The perfect lamb was to be killed, the blood poured out on an altar to make atonement for the sins of the person. This had to be done each time a sin was committed. An animal killed in place of the person. Well, God in his grace sent his son as prophesied by the prophets thousands of years earlier to earth. And while he was on earth, he was to live a perfect, holy, and righteous life, committing no sin, of which he did. And despite his perfections and, and proclamation of the reason that he came to earth, he was killed on a cross, his blood was shed, and he was buried in a tomb. You can see the reference to Jesus being referred to as the perfect lamb of God. Because he was the only human to ever live that lived perfectly without sin, yet was killed anyway. But the story doesn't stop there. Three days later, he rose up from the dead... He moved the stone away from the tomb and he showed his reality to hundreds of people to prove that one can have eternal life by putting their faith and trust in him. Not a single amen from that. 
Thank you. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. It can't be denied. Science proclaims it, history proves it, and the world shouts it. So much so that if an atheist was honest with himself after trying to prove this to be wrong, would end up with the truth. That it's accurate and it's true. That's what Peter is encouraging these believers to keep their eyes on. That as they're going through this persecution, there is so much to fight for. There's so much to argue about and and debate against, of course, but, but he's saying that this truth must never be forgotten. It can't be argued. This is where we stand. This is the gospel. We shall not stray from it. That's one of the main reasons that I wanted to go through this book is because of the ways that that we are seeing this truth being strayed from throughout our culture. From the prosperity gospel, where the gospel is all about us and our material gain, to the progressive gospel, where political agendas and and cultural movements that really go against the morality and teachings of the Bible are are being encouraged and, and supported and promoted within the church walls and even from pulpits. You know, it's no wonder that we're seeing judgment and moral decline in our nation. The church is losing sight of the truth of the gospel, and when you do that, the culture goes with it. The church first. The gospel is that God came down to reconcile us before a holy God, not for our glory, but for his. It's that simple. The gospel is about Jesus. We just get the benefit of it by accepting it. That's our role. It's what makes our faith different from any other religion in the world, that a loving God would die for us. There is no other faith that can make that claim. Now, with that being said, I believe that too many Christians are are living with the mindset that he has to do it again. Right? It's called unforgiveness. I, I myself fall in this from, from time to time. That because of the fact that they are unable to forgive themselves, or that I'm, able to un, that, that I'm not able to forgive myself, that God is also not able to forgive me. The issue with this way of thinking is that we forget that we have already been forgiven. Unforgiveness is a serious problem, it, and it actually is one that results in guilt and and shame, and and if it's repeated and lived in for too long, it results in depression. It sucks the joy out of the Christian life. For those of you that are struggling in this area, that that are forgetting that their sin has already been paid for, please write this passage down. Highlight it in your Bible, whatever you have to do. 1 Peter 3.19, I'm going to read it one more time. 3.18, I'm sorry. For Christ also suffered once for sins, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Unforgiveness, unable to forgive yourself, it's not something to take lightly. I want to encourage you that if you are in this position of having trouble forgiving yourself, Remember this, freedom comes from trusting that the cross 
is enough. Don't fall into that lie that the cross isn't enough. God did it once and for all, and it's for all those who have faith in him. He only needed to do it once. It's done. He said himself, these three words, it is finished. And he meant it. Point number one was this, because of Christ, the righteous have been justified. The unrighteous have been justified. Let's keep reading. Verse 19. <clears throat> in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in heaven, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Point number two. Because of Christ, the victory is won. Because of Christ, the victory is won. Now, believe it or not, this is actually a very heavy theological verse. Do you see what I'm talking about with Peter writing about the simple gospel and talking about Christ descending into hell? There are many various perspectives on how to translate this, and, and even the greatest of theologians have yet to come to an agreement as to how this verse should be translated. This is one of the bases on which is found very evident in what we call our Apostles' Creed. And personally, I believe this is actually the best and most simple explanation. The creed, the creed reads like this, and so many of you are familiar with it. I believe in Jesus Christ... His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And then listen, he descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. It goes on, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. That's the Apostles' Creed. Did you hear the line, he descended to hell? Peter is, is reminding the believers here that Jesus went down to hell following his murder on the cross. But here's the catch. He didn't go to hell to proclaim the gospel. He went to proclaim the victory. He didn't go to give any human a second chance, but instead to remind the demons and spiritual beings who really sits on the throne. It's so cool to me, really. Jesus essentially went to hell to show Satan and all of his demons that the victory of King Jesus is just days away. He's going to rise again. You can read this and think, man, that, that must have been scary. Jesus going into the depths of hell where the Bible states that there is nonstop weeping and gnashing of teeth, where Satan himself runs rampant in darkness and loneliness like no, experience, no one has ever experienced before, unquenching thirst. This is what the, these are the ways the Bible describes hell. And yes, that must be scary, <clears throat> but not for Jesus. Jesus didn't go there out of punishment. He went there out of privilege. 
And man, the scene that this must have caused must have been absolutely reckless once he got there. The way that it could be put in the most literal sense is that all hell broke loose. Why? Because the creator was in the presence of the creation and the enemy wanted nothing to do with it. Jesus was on enemy territory, but the enemy knew that he didn't stand a chance against the almighty God. In other words, Jesus was in the house. Let me give you an example. You know how like when you were a kid, maybe I'm only speaking for myself, and, and you get to that age where your parents are finally trusting of you to, to be home alone without having to get you a babysitter, you know, maybe that age, like 10, 12 years old, around that point. And it's even worse if you have a sibling. They finally trusted you. They're like, all right, we're going to go out on a date. We don't got to have a babysitter here. And and then the the minute they they left, you look at your brother, it was the case for me, and you just know you're going to have a good time. (laughs) It's like when the substitute teacher walks in the room, you're like, all right, it's going to be fun today. (laughs) Basketball in the basement baseball in the living room, whatever toys you wanted scattered throughout the house. But then you realize that just as quickly as they left, they got to come back. (laughs) My brother and I would, this was our cue, we'd hear that garage door open. The garage door's opening. Some of you guys are there, right? And we'd look at each other like a deer in headlights. We'd, we'd hurry to trying to clean up the things in a few seconds that we had put out. You know, we pulled all this stuff out we were going to do, and thankfully there were no broken windows this time. And, and the minute that they, they walked in, toys were underneath the couch or the bed, and we're sitting at each other with smiling faces. <laughs> Hi, Mom and Dad. But you see, the minute they got home, immediate submission. Immediate acknowledgement of who ran the house. Chaos might have been ensuing prior, but mom and dad were home. Imagine what hell looked like when Jesus got down there. I can give you a picture. In Mark chapter 5, probably one of my most favorite, excuse me, one of my most favorite chapters in, in the New Testament as it recounts the the power of Jesus. <clears throat> the disciples and, and all of them were, were following Jesus to an area called the Gerasenes. This was a nasty place. There were tombs where the dead were buried. It was muddy from the water being so close to the muddy shore and, and the forest and It was just an absolutely disgusting area. Pigs stayed there. It was disgusting both spiritually and geographically. Well, in this area, again, I I, I get goosebumps just thinking about this. This is one of my favorite chapters. There was a man who was possessed with demons. That S there at the end of demons is important. It means there's plural. Scholars actually say his. He said his name was Legion, meaning that this man was possessed by close to 6,000 demons. And he was living among the tombs of the Gerasenes for years. 
On top of this, the people of the area tried for so long to chain the man up so that they could contain him, keep him in one place. They didn't like that there was a man living in the tombs, and this man was strong. Why? Because it wasn't just his own physical strength. It was also the strength of thousands of demons that were inside of him. The strongest of men in the town tried to subdue him, but he would literally break the chain. They couldn't do it. He would break the chains with no effort at all. For years, the town tries to subdue this possessed man. But then as the story goes, one afternoon, a boat pulls up to shore. And who's on that boat? Jesus. King Jesus. So you see the picture. You have this man who is in the tombs, living there for years, that dozens upon dozens of strong men tried to chain up. And the disciples, they just get off the boat. They had a really rough day of ministry on the other side of the lake. And they, and they, say, to this, they say to Jesus, they're like, again, why can't we just relax? There is a demon-possessed man who is now running full throttle in their direction. They were scared. What happens next is absolutely incredible. Be reminded of this, my friend. When you believe that you are under attack by the spiritual realm and you just think that it is so powerful, that there's nothing that you could do, listen to these words. This man possessed by thousands of demons runs up to Jesus. Climax of the story, Mark chapter 5, verse 6 says this. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Total submission to King Jesus. He runs to Jesus not to try to get into an altercation with him, but rather to fall in his, at his feet in complete and utter submission. Even the demons knew who he was. Total submission. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the savior. Jesus is the sacrifice. And even the demons knew that. Now, as we go on, it's, it's obvious that, that it's not referring to his literal body that went to hell, but rather his soul. He went and proclaimed his deity to the spirits in prison, as the scripture says. And and it, 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 it's not to be confused. So many hear this and then they come up with the term purgatory, that, that God would put believers in a holding cell awaiting the final judgment as to whether or not they would go to heaven or hell. Let me tell you that this is just a twisted view of this passage. There, there is no such thing as purgatory. There, there is no waiting room. And really, thank God for that. Salvation is not based on our works. It's based on our faith in Jesus Christ. Scripture alone says it, for it is by grace that we have been saved by faith, and this is not by works, so that why? No man can boast. Salvation is 100% totally dependent on the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross, 100%. There is nothing that we can do in this role of salvation beside receiving this free gift. As it's been said before, I believe it was Spurgeon, if salvation was 99% God and 1% us, we would all be hellbound. 
but it is 100% dependent on the death, resurrection, and life of Jesus Christ. And we can thank God that it is. The point is because of Christ, the victory has been won. Write that down. Remind yourself of that every day. Because of Christ, the victory has been won. We say it, but do we receive it? Let's keep reading. Verse 21 and 22. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Point three, because of Christ, authority has been given. Because of Christ, authority has been given. Now, at first glance, you can read this and take the assumption that Peter is writing that baptism saves you, that this is what gives you salvation. But Peter says prior to these words, baptism which corresponds to this now saves you. He ties in the physical salvation that Noah's ark brought him, referring to Noah, through the flood. The water killed the evil of the world, you see it, and preserved the lives of those that God has signed and sealed. Those are important words. God made a promise to Noah and his family that he would preserve his life, but rid the earth of evil with water, with a flood. In the same manner, baptism is not a removal of physical dirt, but rather the demonstration of a clear conscience before God, that one is dying of the old self and clinging to new faith in Christ. This removal of dirt is portrayed to help the believers that are reading this letter to understand that there is no magical power in the sacrament, but that it symbolizes union with Christ in his death and resurrection. That's how R.C. Sproul puts it. In other words, baptism does not save you. If you were to be baptized by any person or any amount of water and claim that you are now saved, your salvation would be in the hands of the person that did the baptism or even worse, in the water itself. But Peter reminds the the readers here, salvation is in the hands of Jesus and the work that he did through his perfect life, his innocent death and powerful resurrection. To say that there is anything that we can do as believers to earn our way to heaven outside of having faith in Christ would ultimately be saying that the cross is not enough. And my friend, let me assure you that the cross is more than enough. It is enough to defeat death. It is enough for salvation. It is enough for an eternal relationship with the very God who created the universe. It is enough to fix broken families. It is enough to break the chains of addiction. It is enough to give hope to the hopeless. It's enough to give the one who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of the very God of the universe with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him 
the one who the world and all of its kings and presidents are subjected to, the one of who Satan himself must bow down to, the one that knows everything that you have done and looks at you and still calls you friend. Band, come on up. Let's pray. God, we thank you that Christ suffered for our sins, that he suffered once and for all who believe, for all who accept that reality. Lord, as your gospel was made clear, I pray that you work in the heart of the one who hasn't accepted it yet. That that even today, they reach out and say, "I, I want that. I understand that. And I accept that. God, we praise you for your goodness. God, we praise you for the grace that you have shown us. Lord, we praise you for every breath that we take. God, we praise you for who you are. Lord, for the believers in this room, the followers of you, we collectively say that we love you so much. It's in your son, Jesus' name we pray. Amen.